So what I learned from this, I call the martial arts insight, and that is when opposed, don't confront. Instead, welcome challenges with a grateful heart. They're actually gifts that open up a world of possibilities for us and release the power of creativity to flow within us. Many times when we face obstacles, we think, oh, I'm going to get through it this way, I'm going to run around it, or sometimes they're going to run away. But using gratitude in this particular way opens the obstacle up and allows you to approach it in a creative way. Hello everyone, that was an extract of a TED talk given by today's guest, Roy Horan. To say Roy has led an eclectic life would be a bit of an understatement. He's been a businessman, movie actor, martial artist, meditator and teacher of creativity. And it's the latter two of those things we're going to focus in on today. I'm personally very passionate about anything that takes mindful or meditative practice to a deeper level and in doing so makes it also more accessible for people. And that's exactly what I think Roy's work does. I also like it when this can be grounded in something practical and tangible. And again, Roy does this by showing how anyone can use meditation to open up deep states of creativity from where invaluable insights can arise. So here's Roy starting us off by explaining his journey into mindfulness and spirituality. Well, mindfulness, as you well know, is quite a popular topic, uh, actually worldwide. Um, it's, a, it's an ancient Buddhist concept that uh, Kabat-Zen is probably most famous for uh, kind of putting it in a research context and getting people to practice it. So it's, a, it's been very, very popular. And, uh, and many people have benefited from it. You know, there's stress reduction and better focus and many different types of uh, outcomes from mindfulness. Uh, however, um, my approach to mindfulness is, is a little bit different than what's uh, kind of available in the market today. Mm -hmm. But in order to get there to what that difference is, uh, yes, there's been a journey. There's been a, definitely there's been a journey um, in terms of spirituality, my spiritual endeavors, even though I didn't know that's what they were at the time, started when I was very young, started about the age of four or five, because unlike, uh, most children who like to play with other children, you know, play baseball and so forth, I was a nature boy. So I spent a lot of time in nature, observing nature, and, uh, and I felt very, very comfortable with it. And at the same time, uh, being in a natural environment, I began to explore my relationship with nature. And um, I would try all different types of things, you know, different sort of mental exercises related to nature. And uh, I began to discover uh, or feel that there's some great underlying mystery. Right, but were you philosophically influenced in that way? Were you reading anything or influenced by anyone to make you think along those lines? Or was this a kind of spontaneous discovery? This is, this is all spontaneous. Um, I started reading at an early age. And uh, most of the books that I read at an early age either related to science or spirituality. So I probably started uh, reading serious books at uh, maybe around the age of nine, something like that, nine mm -hmm. years old. Um, but my, what generated the feeling, it was not so much the intellectual understanding of things uh, was interesting. I found it very interesting. But what was probably most 
interesting to me was actually how I felt about being in nature, how I felt about being among people, how I felt about being in this world and uh, trying to understand that and, and having this ongoing suspicion that there's, that there's a greater truth to this reality. And I didn't quite know what it was. And of course, reading books, I tried to discover what that might be, see what other people had to say about it. And uh, so I read many, many things. And uh, I was reading Rational Theology, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, because I, I, my family was Catholic. Right. And I studied, I studied to be a priest. I had decided I was going to be a priest at the age of 11. <laughs> I went into a seminary when I was 14. Uh, that didn't quite work out, but uh, there was something, something, I just felt that there was something underlying all of this. And um, so that uh, took me through all sorts of different types of experiences uh, through my life. And um, at the same time, I was very interested in science because science I saw is another way to kind of get at things. Yeah, well, it strikes me as interesting that Thomas Aquinas and Catholicism struck you as a way to get at things, and so did science. Like, there's this sense of an underlying mystery, and that there could be different portals to that, and quite contrasting portals, really. Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, but then I started getting, uh, probably around university, I started getting and in, delving into uh, Eastern, Eastern philosophy. Um, and I don't know if we have time for it, but you shared one experience about, uh, about uh, depression. Yes. Depression. And then uh, coming out of that state of depression um, and experiencing uh, love at a very, very deep level. Yeah, that's a substantial part of my biography, yeah. Well, I had a very similar experience. But my experience wasn't, uh, it was a self-induced depression. Right. I was actually trying to explore a concept and didn't realize that it snowballed on me. <laughs> and uh, and had, we can talk about this some other time because I, I just want to kind of get up to sure, you know, sure. But uh, so anyway, and uh, I explored many, many different things. I lived in the Far East. I've been in the Far East for many years. Uh, I left for the Far East, I guess, in 1974. But prior to that, uh, I, I had been in the Arctic. I lived with Native Americans over the Arctic Circle as a fur trapper and hunter. I was the only white man in their history that ever lived their life out in the wilderness. Right, so are we talking way up in the north of Canada or Alaska? Canada, Northwest Territories of Canada, wow. outside of a, a small village called Fort Good Hope. Um, about 300 miles north of that was where I first went out into the bush. But for me, that was a very, very powerful experience for the simple reason that I actually really lived in nature all the time, 24 seven. And uh, it's a very, very strange environment. It's almost because it's a desert. You know, the Arctic is a desert. So you're actually living in a frozen desert. Yeah. And uh, it has a, just a very, very strange vibration to it. Um, so that, I also imbibed that. But then I was reading lots of, uh, prior to that, and later on reading books about Eastern religions and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> I read stories of yogis 
experiencing altered states of consciousness and so forth. So part of my scientific mind, you know, looked at all of this as a bit of a fairy tale. <laughs> mm. I, I didn't quite, uh, quite believe that some of these stories were, were true. You're talking about the kind of where people are levitating and walking through walls kind of stories, I take it. No, I'm just, I'm just talking about, uh, you know, experiencing non-dual reality, oh, okay. Okay. non-duality, uh, experiencing lights and colors and sounds and cosmic consciousness and, and all this sort of thing. Even though I had grown up in a, in a hippie culture, uh, I kind of looked at this, the scientific mind looked at this as well, you know, somebody smoking something <laughs> to have these experiences. Uh, even though I still felt that there was a, there was a deeper truth to everything. I wasn't quite sure what that was. In 1991, I had a, I had a Shaktipat experience. Uh, do your listeners, your viewers, they understand what Shaktipat is? I'm, well, I think a fair few of them will, but maybe a brief definition would be helpful. Well, Shakti, Shaktipat is a, is a spiritual initi initiation. Uh, Shaktipat in, in the tradition that I received it is called uh, a kundalini awakening. Mm -hmm. So basically, theoretically, uh, what they say is all the energy in the universe is the energy that we experience is a certain form of energy or different forms of energy, but it's a basic, I guess you could call it more yang type of energy. Um, but then there's a, a yin form of energy or hidden form of energy that uh, rests within the human body. Uh, and it's usually not awakened. You know, we can go through lifetime after lifetime. It's usually not awakened. And then for some reason, sometimes spontaneously, sometimes through spiritual practice and so forth, this energy can be awakened. And uh, once it's awakened, then it basically goes on automatic pilot. And what I mean by automatic pilot is it's going to take you where you need to go. Uh, even if you kick and fight the whole way. You can slow it down, but you're not going to stop it once it's awake. And uh, what that does is it opens up your awareness to those deeper states of reality or to reality that we don't normally experience. Once you have that experience, uh, your life is transformed immediately. I mean, completely different. Your perspective of reality changes automatically. And, uh, and it's, a, it's sustained. It's not something that comes and goes. It's sustained. Um, then eventually, over time, that understanding of that alternate state actually becomes very much merged with the reality that we normally experience. In other words, but we see reality around us. We see moment by moment how we live our lives, how we experience our lives in a slightly different way. Um, so I mean the old Zen statement in the beginning, mounds were mountains, rivers were rivers, and trees were trees. And then when I started to learn, they were no longer mountains and rivers and trees. And then eventually when I became enlightened, they were mountains and rivers and trees again. Uh, but the quality, you know, towards the end is different. Okay. And did this follow up? Was there an intense kind of practice that built up to the the Shaktipa experience to induce that? No. Well, I, I, had, I had been practicing meditation. 
Mm -hmm. I had practiced meditation uh, for a while before that, before that happened. Um, it was fortuitous. Okay. Uh, I was in, I was in Hong Kong. I had been, I had been practicing uh, uh, the self-realization fellowship. Uh, they had a home study course, which I was taking. I had been taking it for a number of years and um, I was enjoying that. I was enjoying the, the exploration. Um, so in Hong Kong, I had been in a building fire and in this building fire, um, I was saving people from the building, but there were some toxic fumes that got into my lungs. And, uh, so I was having some lung problems around this time and people that I knew said, Hey, Roy, we know you're into yoga. You know, there's a guru coming to town. And I said, well, that's great. <laughs> I'm not interested. <laughs> so uh, this kept happening over a period of a couple of weeks. People say, hey, there's a guru coming to down. And I just blew it off. But then I went to see my doctor for a regular checkup. He was a fellow from India. He said, hey, Roy, there's a guru coming to town. <laughs> and this time I was really frustrated with the thought of it. And I said, well, <laughs> who is it? What? He says, I don't know, but they have a center in this, uh, in this building in Hong Kong called landmark uh i said all right and i said what floor is it on he says on the 16th floor and i said okay so i wasn't far from his office i went over to the landmark went into the elevator to press 16 and there was no 16 button it went from 15 to 17 and i went what you know so i went out <laughs> and talked to the to the security guard and i said where's the 16th floor he said oh that's the uh that's the mechanical system for the building. This is a high, uh, you know, this is a skyscraper and it's a mechanical floor. And I, I said to him, I said, is there any yoga center or something like that? Meditation center in this place? And uh, he said, are you crazy? <laughs> Who could afford the rent here? Is this, you know, downstairs is like Gucci and Chanel. <laughs> and I said, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, anyway, um, through a, by that time, I was curious. I was curious uh, why all of a sudden there's a guru coming to town and I can't find uh, can't find out who this is. So anyway, I found that she was giving a talk on uh, on, a, on a Friday about the mantra about mantra. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm listening to her, and uh, you know she's very good presenter and uh and so forth and i thought that was great you know but i'd heard a lot of it before about mantra and then uh she said now we're going to uh we're going to practice chanting a mantra there were 1500 people there and my mind said no way i'm going to chant because i can't really sing right <laughs> so i, <laughs> I refused to chant you know, i have this paranoia of chanting yeah <laughs> so 1500 people are sitting there chanting and uh i'm sitting there refusing to do it then after a while, I figured, ah, okay, I'll give it a try. So I chanted this mantra only five times, about five times. And then all of a sudden, I broke out in tears. I was crying. I was sobbing and, and totally embarrassed. I had no idea what was going on <laughs> at the time. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, sadness. It wasn't elation. It was just some sort of psychic release. Hmm. And... Uh, I'm going, what's, what's happening here? I'm losing the plot. <laughs> and then uh, I heard a voice inside. And the voice uh, was neither male nor female. 
And the voice says, Roy, it's time to come home. I went, what? <laughs> so anyway, so there was a, there was a program over the next couple of days, uh, like a meditation retreat. And uh, so first day of the retreat, talks, chanting, meditation. I like the meditation. I didn't like the bell at the end of meditation. I'm listening to all of this. And uh, so it was an experience you took to straight away the meditation. It was because I mean, some people, when they start meditation, they do like the bell at the end of it because it's quite a frustrating thing sat there trying to watch the breath or something or be mindful of sensations. It was something that you feel you sank into. No, once I, once I started meditating, I usually didn't like to come out of meditation right. unnaturally. And I thought a bell was unnatural, you know, <laughs> pull me out of it. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, I was a bit confused by the whole thing. And then uh, on the second day, I didn't realize that there was going to be a longer meditation. And she was uh, guiding us through this dharana or visualization technique. But it started off with, uh, you know, I'd like you to smell a beautiful smell. And uh, I don't have a very good nose. <laughs> so I'm thinking, I'm thinking that's not going to happen. And then uh, about a minute later, all of a sudden, I, I smell this really exotic, beautiful smell. And I'm like, what the heck? So I opened my eyes and I was sniffing the women in front of me because I thought maybe it was their perfume. And uh, it wasn't their perfume. I closed my eyes. It came back again. And then I started thinking, wow, these people are real really up to something they must be pumping it into the air conditioning right, system okay. <laughs> because it was just it was so beautiful such a beautiful smell but anyway i noticed every time i i uh, opened my eyes or got distracted it went away and i closed my eyes it would come back again so anyway what happened was i went on this uh, it it's a lengthy discussion but i actually went on this experience an inner experience that was very visual and uh, and somewhat abstract and somewhat real at the same time. But ultimately what happened is I ended up having a, uh, a life review. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I saw these like video images. They're not just photos, they're like video images happening at extremely high speed. And a lot of those memories are things I had completely forgotten yeah. from childhood. And they went all the way back. But as I was, you know, watching all of this i noticed that there was a golden thread kind of running through all of these videos and images so i'm looking at what's this so i'm uh i was mesmerized by it so i'm kind of following it you know half-assed looking at what was happening and uh it was coming up to to present and then when it came right to the present when i was in the meditation hall then I realized that my entire life, everything that I'd ever done, all these crazy things and so forth, were all leading up to this one particular second, right. this one particular moment. And when I realized that my entire life or this existence was all about this particular moment, um, then I had this tremendous explosion of energy, you know, from the base of the spine to the crown of the head, very, you know, classic mm -hmm. uh, type of thing that radiated throughout the entire body. And I was in an extreme state of ecstasy. As a matter of fact, the ecstasy was so strong, I thought that I, I, 
couldn't contain it. I tried to contain it. Um, and it was ecstasy, but almost painful at the same time. Mm -hmm. It was just so strong. And then right at the time that I was about ready to scream, <laughs> uh, the bell, the bell rang to the end of meditation. And, uh, so that was the second part, the second part of the Shaktipat experience. The third part is about a, a day later, they're opening a center. She entered the room before taking her seat. You know, she looked at me and uh, our eyes met for about two or three seconds. But in that two or three seconds, I experienced what unconditional love is, what unconditional love feels like that's both infinite and eternal where everything is, everything is unconditional love. There's no other reality other than that. So non-dualism, another name for non-dualism is that state yeah. uh, of unconditional love. And so, so these three things kind of kicked off the Shaktipat, Shaktipat experience. One was sound. The second one was actually will. And then the third was uh, sight three of uh, four ways that Shaktipat is transmitted. And uh, so for the next eight years, I was experiencing altered states of consciousness just randomly. Right. So, I mean, I'm, I want to ask what, what was it like to integrate that? I mean, because a lot of people who, who have these kind of intense experiences and particularly when they come quite suddenly um, can struggle to, to integrate whether they're, mystical experiences like you're describing or near-death experience it's it's hard to return to normal life or that intense experience of oneness then meets the sense of self wherever it's at um, so i'm wondering what that process of integration is like for you and whether you continue to study with or yeah study with the guru then were you, were you very attracted to that approach and the person of the guru you were connecting with. Yeah, I continue. I continue to study. I continue to study. I continue to practice. My practice. I was, you know, considered a bit of a of an outlier as far as people go. Uh, I used to wake up at three o'clock in the morning, and I would meditate and practice till about uh, eight thirty, nine o'clock in the morning every single day, seven days a week, mm -hmm. and I did that for eight years. Wow. So, uh, so I guess part of the integration was the continued practice. And were you in an ashram setting that, doing that, or a monastic setting, or were you out in the world living? Oh, I, was, I was a businessman. Oh, I, right. Okay. I, I ran my own business at the, at the time. So I would get up, I, I would go to bed like maybe 10 o'clock at night, something like that. I'd be getting four or five hours sleep, sometimes three hours sleep and kind of got used to it. Um, no, I was just conducting, uh, conducting a normal life and bit by bit, the, the state was integrating in the sense that, well, I kind of use this analogy. It's a pretty well-known analogy that you have the ocean, you have waves. So the waves are the mind, you know, thoughts in the mind and your emotions and your sensations and so forth. But the deeper state or the deeper state of the ocean is very, very silent. And uh, over time, that state has become more predominant 
so it's there all the time mm -hmm. that state is there all the time and so matter it doesn't matter what's happening in the world or what's happening in my own mind and uh you know my own bodily sensations and that this this state of equanimity i guess is uh or serenity is is there all the time now i can either focus on it more focus yeah. more or less on it um but it's there and uh I think that's how it gets integrated is you begin to realize that you are, you know, that great mystery. You are that great silence. You are the, that, that state, that state of unconditional love is, is who we really are as human beings. And the rest of it, you know, is things are happening, but it's, it's colored. It becomes, everything becomes colored with that. doesn't mean that I can't get angry, you know, doesn't mean that I can't have, you know, the human, so-called human experience. You have the human experience, but it's just, it just happens in a slightly different way. Sure. And that was an interesting thing for me, because I think when I was young and got into this, I felt that human experience might fall away, you know, and things like anger, that there'll be a day where I have my last angry thought and then, <laughs> and, um, yeah welcome it <laughs> yeah I, I, absolutely and, and i did because i think it, it, i came to see that it, it started to, what what looks like oh that'll be a wonderful thing pretty soon it started to look like a pretty bleak and bland thing and then when i found out these emotions continue but in a different context it was oh, it was a big relief i was very very happy to think that i'm, I'm still going to be a human being throughout my life you know you know, people thought I was uh, thought I was a bit strange. I mean, the fact that you know I had those practices, mm. uh, and I'm a vegetarian, and uh, and you know I don't drink and all these sort of things. You know, they find that a little bit unusual. But uh, as long as you let people understand that you're that way, not because you dis disrespect them. Mm that you look down on them or that you're better than them in any way, shape or form. It's got nothing to do with that. It just has a lot to do with your own, your own path, your own path through life and what, what takes you where you need to go in the best way possible. So some people, you know, they can be very well along this spiritual path and be avid meat eaters. You know? <laughs> so, it's uh we're all different we're all different but we're all kind of heading in the same direction you know sooner or later so at some point you developed a particular approach to mindfulness a kind of threefold approach i think so maybe talk about how that evolved out of this practice and these insights you're having well once you become aware of that state once you become aware of that deeper state and it becomes more predominant in your life, then you kind of look at things differently. So when I first came onto the concept of mindfulness, because I, I've, I teach meditation and I've taught meditation for quite a number of years. And uh, what I've discovered over the years is there is no such thing as one size fits all. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are different types of meditation. There's a book called the Vigyana Bharaiva uh, that states 114, I believe it's 114 basic approaches to, to meditation. And from that, there are thousands of different techniques that come out of it. So mindfulness is a, is a technique. 
or the way that it's the way that it's taught today. But if you look at mindfulness uh, more closely, what you're actually doing is you're witnessing. You're witnessing your thoughts, emotions, and sensations, and which is is wonderful that you're able to do that because it gives you a certain amount of distance from your emotions, particularly negative emotions and negative thoughts. But mindfulness is limited in terms of people who actually want to live fully as a human being and at, at the level of their full potential. So some people say liberation, enlightenment, or, or whatever. Okay. If you're interested in, in being a business person um, or being an artist, or whatever, you want to do a better job and you, and you want to have a sense of well-being, mindfulness is a wonderful practice. But if you want to take it to a deeper level, mindfulness does have deeper levels. So the level at which it's taught nowadays is a form of witnessing. So what happens to mindfulness, if you want to take it to a deeper level, is you use the ability to witness and you turn it back on itself. So the witness is witnessing the witness. Okay. So to speak. Now you're going in a, in a different direction. And as you, as you start to turn it back inwards, there are, from what I've experienced, there are different stages that happen. Um, from witnessing to turning it back, uh, witnessing turned back on the witness, the first thing that you might notice is the experience of life that we have seems a little bit of an illusion. So that's where the mountains are no longer mountains and okay. the trees are no longer trees. Um, so the witness becomes almost like a mirror. It's reflecting at this stage. It's reflecting reality. That can be very, very disturbing <laughs> to people <laughs> when they go, oh, this is all a dream. <laughs> you know, and for some people, it could be, you know, they get a sense of meaninglessness of, you know, yeah. Why, why is it like that? And they get stuck there. So that's actually what I would call a dissolving or destructive, destructive aspect of the mindful, mindful practice. But that's necessary, necessary for us to bypass a lot of our programming. You know, witnessing, you can, you can put off your programming, you can become relaxed and content, but to really bypass it, you have to turn further inward. And then as you continue, you know, your relationship with the witness, then there comes a point where you begin to realize that you're actually spinning out reality. In other words, you're creating your reality, not just the, you know, the little soundbite, <laughs> you create your reality. You actually begin to experience that. So you would, we can talk about it later, but you know, the idea of uh, Huang Zhenli, the Taekwondo guy who was able to study in his own mind. Okay, yeah, now that's very interesting. I, I read that in your book. We get to the uh, get to the point where we actually realize that we're creating our reality. Now that's a whole different thing. There's a lot of power there. There's a tremendous amount of power when you when you realize that. So just to be clear, are you talking about in a similar way to we might if we become lucid in a dream, 
be aware that we're creating the dream. That the dream is a reflect is a reflection of what's going on within us in some way. Is that? Uh, that's you know, it's it's something along those lines. Uh, a lucid dream, you in lucid dreaming, you can stand back. The dreams happen spontaneously, uh, and then you can you can manipulate them, and so forth. In this stage, it's not that reality around you comes spontaneously it's all part of something that you're actually creating you're actually creating you know through your through your mind through your senses mm -hmm. uh, that we're creating this reality i mean scientifically uh, a snake's reality or a butterfly's reality is very very different than ours oh, sure. yeah you know so what's to say our reality is is more real than their reality you know, philosophically. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we get to the point where we're actually creating. And then, and then finally, um, you merge with the witness state. You merge with the witness state. And I don't know how to describe that. I don't know how to describe that. That's your, if you want to call it your non-dual state. Okay. Because you, you're kind of leading to a contradiction there, right? In a certain sense of witnessing the witness. It's like look, you're looking at yourself, or the eye can't can the eye see itself, and it it just comes into a fundamental paradox. And then it's the only it's the only way to the only way to describe it. And there's a sort of a resolution of that paradox, but one that's very hard to put into words. Then, yeah, uh, it has very much to do with uh, with creativity. Uh, creativity is something that you said you were interested in. I'm I'm very interested in the you've applied this lets me just say like deeper approach to mindfulness say to creativity um and because it, it's something that i noticed very strongly when meditation practice opened up for me in that deeper way of this self-abiding um witnessing the witness and then going beyond that to abiding as that deep self i noticed an increase in creativity arising in all sorts of ways and one i was um very involved in Aikido at the time. And that sinking into a deeper place in myself allowed the movements to come alive in a way they hadn't before. In a way that mindfulness and focusing my awareness on my hands and what's out there uh, did not. All of a sudden I was aware of this spacious freedom in which I was moving. Um, and I remember also just in any creative project, it was like I could step back and see the contents of my mind. So. Um, rather than being zoomed in on my desktop and just seeing every little thing, I could come back and see the whole desktop and see how this bit over here related to this bit over here. And when you put them together, they create something new. So I found this immense creative freedom in stepping into that deeper mindful place. And that's, it did intrigue me as to um, your work then looking into that place as the source of creativity, because I think, people are very intrigued by creativity and they know it's there and probably everyone has at least one kind of brilliant genius insight in their life. So they know that capacity is back there somewhere, right? But how do you get there? And I think that this can provide a bit of a roadmap. Um, so yeah, I'd be very interested to hear about um, how you, yeah, how, how you, you develop this work in that direction. Well, creativity if you really understand creativity at a deeper level, it's one tiny, tiny veil 
from what people call enlightenment. It's just that close uh, to it, if you understand creativity at a deeper level. There is a, uh, you've heard of Patanjali? Yes. So, so Patanjali wrote the Yoga Sutras. So he, he taught, uh, you know, how to keep yourself clean and so forth and go all the way through meditation and dharana and jnana and samadhi and so forth. And then towards the end of his book, he started talking about samyama. Samyama is the creation of uh, supernormal powers. You know, the ability to read minds and, you know, all, all these sort of things. He never explained what samyama is mm -hmm. or how to do it. Um, but towards the end of that, he starts talking about samyama as creativity, as like ongoing creativity. Right. And uh, so why? Why just before enlightenment, so to speak, is he talking about this uh, tremendous power, you know, to, to create reality, to change external reality, not only your internal reality, but external reality. So when I was 19, uh, I experienced sanyama spontaneously. I didn't know what it was, but very, very unusual things were coming out of it. And, uh, so many years later, after the Kundalini awakening, like you, I also found creativity expanding in, in my life. Um, that basically I could get the answers to just about anything hmm. fairly, fairly quickly. So I was curious. I was curious on how that, how that was happening. And, uh, then what I did was I went back to Samyama and I found a way to teach it in the context of creativity. Mm -hmm. So I would take high school students who are in their first year of design or other students from other, other areas of, of uh, discovery and learning. And uh, I taught them in three hours how to get in touch with that deeper level of creativity. And uh, the upshot was in a 15 minute exercise, the students were solving very, very complex design problems. And they were solving them at the level of either fourth year designers or actually professionals working in the field. And these are kids that had no concept of design whatsoever. Okay, now with my development of creativity, I would say I had it spontaneous at the times, um, and then I got a grasp of what was going on after about 10 years. I could say, oh, okay, it's this. So three hours is good. <laughs> so, <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's very, very fast. Um, so what is it? Why is, why is uh, creativity like that? So I, I try to explain to people metaphysically why why we're able to do that and in order to understand that you kind of got to understand how the universe came about because the universe is highly created i mean we're a product we're a product of evolution or whatever's happening in this in this universe have you uh, heard of a concept called dependent origination i have not no okay so let me try to explain this so if Let's say we have a block universe. It's a big block, big okay. cube yep. universe. 
And within that universe are infinite possibilities, but none of those possibilities have manifested. So you have infinite possibilities. One of the possibilities is that one or more or all of these possibilities have the capacity to reflect themselves. So imagine if in that block universe, you had a big mirror. Mm -hmm. And in that, in that mirror, outside of that mirror, so-called outside of that mirror, is a dog. Mm -hmm. That dog is, is just a possibility. But that possibility is reflected in this mirror, the dog mirror, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Now, suddenly the two of them are dependent. The mirror cannot exist without the possibility of the dog. And the dog, the possibility of the dog, cannot exist without the mirror, something that reflects it. Okay. So you've got, this is dependency. And once you have this uh, dependency, and let's say it spreads throughout the entire system, then all of a sudden you've got, you've got reality as, as we know it. The possibilities become real. Are they really real? You know, only through that reflective capability are they real. Otherwise, they're still, it's still a block universe. In other words, it's just possibility there. So it's this power of reflection. Now the human mind has the power to reflect. So the witnessing state, you know, when you witness things, mm -hmm. when you turn back, when you turn back the witness and witness the witness, then what's happening is you're creating this reflection. Right. You're creating this capacity for, for reflection. Once you start creating this capacity for reflection, something very strange happens in the brain. So uh, you, you know of various uh, brainwave frequencies? Yes. So you, have, yes. you have slow frequencies and you have high frequencies. Mm -hmm. So when people meditate, what happens is they go into slow alpha wave. So a slow alpha wave is a very relaxed state. It's usually around, I don't know, eight, eight uh, cycles per second. Um, the dream state is slower than that. It's five to seven cycles per second. And then you have delta, which is deep sleep, mm -hmm. which is uh, 0.5 to about four cycles per second. So what happens is people get into this very relaxed state. So in this relaxed state, our normal associations, depending on where it happens in the brain, our normal associations become more dissolved, more fluid. Right, okay. Okay. They become more fluid. So we're able to sort of get outside of our programming, all right, to a, to a certain degree. So what we're actually doing is we're sort of witnessing in some ways. We're sort of reflecting or witnessing on what's happening. Now, in creativity, creativity, you have to have an intention to be creative. You have to have a problem or, or something, or you have to see something that stimulates your creativity, right? So what happens is an intention is, is set forth in the, in the mind. Intention has power. So that intention is actually seeds the mind in a relaxed state. And if it seeds the mind in a relaxed state, then it goes to the, to the next phase, which is delta. Certain parts of the brain, the front part of the brain and the parietal lobes of the brain uh, go into delta states. So that's like flatlining. Right. So what the delta state does is the delta state is what we would call the witness. We would call the witness. So the delta state basically 
can look at the massive amount of associations that our brain could make, which is, you know, close to infinite. The amount of association you made is infinite, but that space is seeded by the intention to solve a problem. So what happens in that delta state, it spots or processes all the different possibilities around that particular intention. And then what happens is it collapses boom, like that very, very quickly into gamma, gamma, which is a very high frequency. Gamma is the, the frequency that integrates things. Okay. So it collapses it into gamma. Once it collapses into a gamma, then you have the insight. But when you have an insight, the insight comes in a way that you can understand it. But at the moment of insight, you also have a feeling that there's a lot behind this insight. There's a huge amount behind this insight. That's why you have the, whoa, the aha moment. Because that huge amount that's happening is what Delta has picked up, but the conscious mind cannot understand all of it. We just know, we just know, intuitively know that it's massive, whatever it is that just happened. But that insight, that where the gamma uh, collapses it in the front part of the brain, that's where you have, you know, I'm going to paint with the color red as opposed to the color okay. brown. Okay. So who would be... Um... It might be interesting to paint a picture here of individuals or stories that you think embody this kind of creativity. I mean, what's popping into my mind as you're talking is um, I, I think Einstein is like the archetype of someone who went on a, a dream journey with the, the light beams flying alongside him and relativity emerged out of that. Um, I also think of the fellow who invented the sewing machine. He might have come across this story, but he couldn't figure out how to get the the, the, the one thing he didn't have was how to get the, the thread into the cloth with, with the needle the way it was. And he had a dream about being on an island attacked by the natives and the natives were throwing spears at him and the spears had holes in the heads of the spears. And he, he realized he needed to move the hole on the needle. So something in his mind had figured out the problem and presented it to him in this bizarre and surreal story. And, and that's... Um, that really captures something of creativity right? and so how, how do you have a, a sense of an example either of yourself or with some kind of story of, of that embodies the kind of creativity you're you're talking about oh yeah so many <laughs> <laughs> so many what's your favorite <laughs> <laughs> uh so many well actually you know because I, I i train i train a lot of students mm. and doing this so one thing is to uh when you do sanyama and you get in contact with the subconscious mind at that level, uh, the subconscious mind has its own language. And if you look at dreams, you know, dreams are, it's actually a form of language, but it's kind of scattered, disassociated. But in creativity, uh, the language will come forth uh, in, in sounds, it'll come forth in feelings, it'll come forth in visuals that don't seem to uh, seem to make much sense. There was one, uh, there's a, you can try this sometime yourself, is you ask yourself the question, what is the source of my creativity? Right. right. Now, when you ask yourself that question, don't try to come up with a solution to it. Don't try to come up with an answer. You just repeat the question again and again in your mind for about 30 seconds to a minute. 
you just repeat that question. And then what will happen is you may see some funny things. You could see an image from childhood. You could see, uh, you know, any kind of weird image, or you could hear a sound, you know, remember some sort of sound or some sound comes up or a particular feeling in your body and so forth. What's happening there, if it's unusual, is the, the subconscious mind is giving you a 100% accurate response to your question. Even more accurate than, you know, writing out a text or something like that. And there'll be feelings with it and so forth. So you have to, you have to look at what comes up and how do you feel about it? Is it something positive? Is it something negative? Or, or, or whatever. So I did this exercise for myself the first time I did the exercise, what came up for me was a can of tomato paste. <laughs> Look at a can of tomato paste. Yep. What has that got to do with my life or the source of creativity? But I looked at, how did I feel about this can of tomato paste? I didn't like it. I didn't like it because one, the tomato paste had been processed. It wasn't natural. And then but it's supposed to have value, supposed to have value, but I know that it's unnatural. And then it's in a can, it's in a container. And I don't particularly like boundaries. <laughs> you know, yeah. So because I had a negative reaction to it, I realized that the source of my creativity was one, the seeking for things that are more natural, number one, and have no boundaries. So whenever there's a boundary or someone says, this is reality. This is the way it is. There's a part of Roy's creativity. that's going to go, eh, really? <laughs> so that was just one example. Sure. Another, fe go ahead. another fellow who's a, who's a designer, um, he says, Roy says, I don't know about this activity. This is really weird. He says, what came up to my mind was a chrome muffler, you know, on a motorcycle or, or a car. Right. right. And uh, I said, well, how do you feel about it? He says, well, you know, it's, it's attractive. It's shiny. It's attractive. The design is really, really nice. And uh, I said, well, what does a muffler do? He says, the muffler gets rid of gas, you know, stuff that you don't want uh, in, in the machine. And I said, well, what was happening with it? He said, well, I had something inside that was converting that negative stuff into you know something that was clean and positive and i said does that have anything to do with your design and he goes oh <laughs> like this as he works he works in the field of recycling using recycled materials and uh <laughs> so, you know, i think i've tried well, i don't think i know i've dismissed creative insights at various occasions because they've been too far out i mean i could just give lots of examples of this but one funny one was my my friends and i we made up this um, pub quiz pool game where if you you miss a shot you took a question or something and and they asked me to they had to I had to name the the British guy who got um, the Olympic medals in the high dive right and I'm stood in the pub it's Nate, I know it's Tom it's Tom I can't think of his second name and I kept getting this picture of his face on front of a newspaper and the newspaper is a British newspaper called the Daily Mail right and I was going, it's Tom. I, I said, oh, for goodness sake, I can, see his, I can see his face in the front of the Daily Mail. Tom on the Daily Mail, I can't, I don't know. His name's Tom Daly. 
right? <laughs> and my friends are sitting there looking like he's saying it, but he's not, you know. And if I just stopped and accepted that that was an insight and I should pay attention to it, I think it would have clicked in. But because I, I was just getting frustrated, it's like, why am I seeing a picture of him on the front of this newspaper rather than his name coming up, you know? Because I, I, didn't, I didn't tease it out of the symbol, you know? And I can think of lots of times like that where I've done something like that. The subconscious mind can give us responses to things um, where creativity gets to the point, you know, Einstein or, or whatever is when the problem is very complex, usually when the problem is very complex, that the conscious mind can't, uh, can't handle it. Then the, if you learn how to seed the subconscious properly with an intention, then what happens is those very complex problems will generate a response that's visual or, or whatever. There will be a very, very accurate solution to the, to the problem. And uh, once we learn how to interpret, understand and interpret what's coming up from the subconscious mind, then the, the sky is the limit as far as, uh, as far as creativity goes. Well, let me ask you that and sort of move towards the end then by asking about the sky is the limit. Okay. Because what's occurring to me is that there must be an immense impact to the work you do then of encouraging people to get in touch with this creativity in terms of their future output over the lifetime because uh, my life has been substantially changed by the, the creative insights i've had and sometimes in huge ways and sometimes it's a little project i'm working on that's gone in a much better direction because I've been able to get in touch with this spaciousness within and I've not rejected the symbolic answer when it's come up. I, I've seen the meaning in it. So how do you perceive the impact of your work spreading out then when people are going back to their jobs? Um, maybe in other senses, I think creativity and healing are interlinked things. I think when I think of like, um, I, I've resolved physical difficulties through creative insights that have arisen that have shown, shown me where I was creating a problem in my life that a back injury manifested, you know, to get out of. So, I mean, that's a, that's a, a, de a different direction, but um, I'm just illustrating that it's effective in all sorts of ways. How, how do you perceive the, the impact this, this work is having? Well, uh, in two, two ways, it depends on how people want to utilize it. The way a lot of people want to use, utilize it, particularly those in business, is they're asked to be innovative or, or creative on the job. Uh, so it will generate new ideas, products, services, artistic expressions, and, uh, and so forth. So that's, that's pretty good to do that. For those that are more spiritually inclined, um, then they begin to realize more and more just how much of their reality they are creating right at the at the deeper level and they may want to explore that they want to explore that a little bit further um, ultimately it leads into what i had started talking about earlier which is unconditional love now what does that have to do with creativity so if you look at creativity creativity is about associations making new associations not becoming dependent or attached to a specific set of rules and regulations, paradigms or whatever it is, and to be able to get out of that. So if you get into a state of flux where everything is connected, everything is an association, 
in association, then you're moving towards what love is, because love is the great integrator. And this is the kind of final thing that I wanted to say about mindfulness, where mindfulness um, is not being taught today. Um, and that is, I'm actually starting, uh, starting to teach what I call heartful meditation. So mindfulness, if you look at it, you're accepting reality as it is, accepting your thoughts, emotions, and sensations, and you're just letting them go. So that's kind of a cerebral attitude towards cerebral attitude towards what's happening around you but if you were to approach mindfulness that instead of just accepting we're actually you send love you send gratitude you know tremendous love and gratitude to everything that's happening inside your mind you know or inside your body and so forth and then also when you let it go you let it go with love you offer it you offer it back to the universe so what's happening is instead of becoming a cerebral activity, it's getting you more and more in contact with the connectivity, how everything is really, really connected. So it's not something you just have to let go of your thoughts and emotions and sensations. You should love your thoughts and emotions and say, so it's wonderful that you have them, you know, <laughs> that you have them at all. You're alive. And, uh, and to be able to accept them and also to, to offer them, offer them to the, to the world. This is, this is my creation. This is something that I have, whether it's something negative or something positive, you offer it. But as long as you begin to offer it in that state, then the amount of associations increase, the connectivity increases. As connectivity increases and we become more and more aware of how everything is connected, then your creativity goes up as well. It goes up in, in increments. Um, at the at the same in the same time when you explore creativity from the other direction you know how many associations and so forth just how you can put so many things together and respond to any kind of problem using anything you know to uh, uh to get there it's because we have that deeper sense of how we're all how everything is integrated how everything is associated and boundaries we we get outside of the, the need for boundaries. It's not that you don't uh, respect, you don't respect people's boundaries and whatever, but you yourself, you don't have to live in them. So creativity is definitely connected. So mindfulness, the practice of mindfulness, depending on how you do it, uh, the deeper you go, the further in towards your relationship with the witness, the further you begin to understand the connectivity uh, within the entire universe, within your mind, within your soul, within your body, um, become more and more aware of that, then you're actually living in a state of love more and more. And of course, I think that has a really big impact on society as more and more people become aware of that because then it becomes inclusive. We're not living alone. You, know, you don't have you don't have racism and you know one political party versus another political party. People can kind of sit down and say, "All right, we have different points of view, but we're all on the same page." Ultimately, so yes, I think it it would have a big impact. But myself as a single human being, <laughs> how much I can do, I don't know. I just I just plant the seed. That's all. 
people willing to listen, they're willing to try it out, plant the seed, and you know, it will go where it needs to go. Thank you very much, Roy. Perhaps tell people how they can find out more about, I know you have a book, uh, it's available on Amazon. So that and any other resources you have out there, maybe, maybe tell people how they can find out more about you and your work. I wrote a book. It's called Vigilance of the Heart. Um, Vigilance of the Heart was a revelation. It was a revelation that I received that kind of put a lot of things together. Um, there's a workbook that goes with it. It's not a small book. It's about 400 pages. Not only is it not a small book, it's not an easy read. <laughs> so, so an author says their book is not an easy read. It's not, not that the language is difficult. It's conceptually the, the concepts and how the concepts are interrelated with one another. Um, that can be a little bit difficult for some people to tease apart. Um, the workbook that goes along with it, it gives people different activities that they can, they can try at home. And uh, once you do the activities, then you'll be able to understand more and more what's being said in the, in the book. But the book basically goes from simple everyday life um, and how we normally perceive it to basically the, the higher levels of, or other levels of non-dual consciousness. Um, so that's kind of where, where it goes. And it's a journey. It's a journey that takes you through it. Uh, I'm in the Bay Area right now. I've lived most of my life in the Far East. I'm looking now into offering uh, uh, workshops, workshops on creativity and, and heartful meditation and some other things. So I have a number of different projects uh, that I'm working on. And that, you know, if you're in the Bay Area, <laughs> it'll be easy for you. If not, I don't know, maybe someday I'll do some online. That would be good. Yeah. Online's the way to go, I think. So. Um, but I'll, I'll link to your details and I'll link to the book so people can take a look at that and stay in touch and certainly yeah, for anyone in the Bay Area or perhaps online in the future. Thank you very much. And um, yeah, I hope we'll see what people say about this one, comments people have, questions people have. And the, I, I know you've lived a multifaceted life, so I hope to have you on again to talk about some different areas of this. Okay, no problem. Thank you. <laughs>